What hope is there in the midst of suffering? What is left, in the words of Andrew Peterson, after the last tear falls? After the last secret is told? After the last bullet tears through flesh and bone? After the last disgrace? After the last lie to save some face? After the last brutal jab? from a poisoned tongue, after the last plan fails, after the last siren wails, after the last this marriage is over, after the last years of silence that won't let a heart open. Peterson answers that after all of the brokenness of this world has made itself known in destruction, What is left is love. There is love, he writes. And in the end, the end is oceans and oceans of love and love again. And we'll see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. And we'll look back on these tears as old tales. Because after the last tear falls, there is love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God cares about the troubles of this world? Do you believe that God cares about about your troubles? Do you believe that God so cares about the tears of his people that he catches them? He cares. He does catch them. He does care about them. This is precisely what David tells us in Psalm 56, verse 8. David writes, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God cares about your tears, your troubles, and the tears and troubles of this world. This morning, as we study Psalm 56, it is my prayer that God would persuade you of His love, care, and concern. And having been so persuaded of God's love, care, and concern for you and your tears, I pray that you would overflow with thanksgiving toward God. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, to open your Bibles to Psalm 56. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find our passage on page 476. 476. And when you get there, be sure to take a look at the ascription of the psalm. The ascription is uh, set off by the small but paradoxically capitalized letters. Um, many psalms have ascriptions, and some of them tell us the author, the situation, and the purpose of the psalm itself. That's what we have here in Psalm 56's ascription. Here it is, to the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a miktom of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. From this ascription, we learn that this psalm was to be used in corporate worship. We also learned it was set to a a dove-like tune. 
For those paying close attention, the psalm before, Psalm 56, and the psalm after, Psalm 56, uh, have bird themes in them. Uh, They're all about David flying, fleeing, and finding refuge under the wings of the Almighty. Like a psalm we studied earlier in this series, Psalm 16, this psalm is a a miktam of David. Again, we don't really know what a a miktam is, but the prevailing notion among biblical scholars is it's likely a kind of musical term. The footnote in your Bible probably uh, says uh, as much. The term itself, miktam, means to cover, and that accords well with Uh, David's desire for refuge in God. This description also tells us the situation in which David wrote this psalm. It was when the Philistines seized him in Gath that David wrote this psalm. This little clue is going to have an effect on on how we understand and interpret this psalm. This psalm was written when David was in Gath. So let's let's unpack that just a little bit. Uh, Keeping one finger here, I know we haven't read the psalm yet, but... Keep one finger here and turn back toward Genesis in your Bibles. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should find, uh, be able to find 1 Samuel 21, I believe, on page 244. 244. 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel is about the exaltation of God as king through exalting his earthly king. In this book, in the book of 1 Samuel, we meet the, the ruling judge, Samuel. But Israel complains and they want a king. And so Saul is anointed. He's the reigning king in the book. But he's not the right king. The right king is David. David has been anointed and he is the next king of Israel. David's exaltation to the throne is actually occurring through humiliation. So though David has been declared anointed to be the right king of Israel, he refuses to claim his rights to the throne. Over and over again, he entrusts that God will bring him to the throne at the right time. But in the meantime, Saul viciously drives David out of his house, chases him all over Israel, and eventually out of Israel, right into enemy hands. So let's read 1 Samuel 21. Begin there in verse 10. Sorry, verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then you... Uh, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Well, here's the situation. David, with Goliath's sword in hand, flees into enemy territory. 
The Philistines are the constant enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. Not only does David flee into enemy territory, but he goes right into Goliath's hometown. What do you think the Philistines would have thought when they saw David with Goliath's sword? Anger and rage. And the king of the Philistines recognizes that David is Israel's rightful king. And more importantly, he recognizes David. This puts his life in jeopardy. Pay close attention to those words there in verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish. We're going to see David's fear come front and center in Psalm 56. While in Gath, under the custody of the Philistines, David wrote Psalm 56. So with this background in mind, let's turn back and read Psalm 56. Turn back to Psalm 56. And in case your finger slipped out, that's page 476 of the Bibles provided. 476. Psalm 56. To the choir master. According to the dove on the far off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. For many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. We're going to study this psalm under three headings. Trouble, trust, and thanks. Trouble, trust, and thanks. Those are the three main themes in this psalm. And and the basic structure of this poem and song is as follows. A, B, A, B, C. There's a complaint in verses 1 and 2. That's A, right? So there's a complaint, A. Then comes confidence in verses 3 and 4. That's B. And then the pattern of A, B, it it repeats with with a longer complaint there in verses 5 to 7, only to be followed by an even longer expression of confidence in verses 8 to 11. And then the psalm concludes. Here comes C. It concludes and resolves with a commitment to give thanks to God, found there in verses 12 and 13. Let's begin by looking at the trouble that David endures. And this is found in his complaint. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 again. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. 
My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David's trouble is immediately apparent in this psalm, isn't it? He doesn't begin by describing his trouble. He begins by appealing to God for grace. Without wasting any time, David goes right to God in prayer. He calls and cries out for grace. Here's a lesson for us in the midst of trouble. Immediately go to God for grace. Pray. Pray for God and His grace to preserve you. Pray for God and His grace to protect you. Pray for God and His grace to give you the strength to persevere, to keep going. David is in trouble, but what kind of trouble? Well, David's in the kind of trouble that tramples. Here, David feels like he's being run over by his enemies. They're, they're breathing down his neck. He's in Gath, after all. What else would he find in Philistine territory but enemies all around him? He is in danger at every moment. He could have little hope of sleep or rest. And consider the words that David uses to describe his troubles. Just in the first two verses, he's trampled and attacked and oppressed. This is what he endures. But did you notice how the second verse ended? David's enemies, they're, they're proud. What, what makes it worse when you're being oppressed and attacked? Then your enemies are proud about this, what they're going about doing. This is what he endures. His enemies take delight in bringing trouble upon him. Just, just think of Psalm 2, right? I mean, this, this shouldn't be, right? This shouldn't be how things go for God's king, for the Lord's anointed. Right? According to Psalm 2, God's anointed king should not be undergoing suffering. He should be triumphing over his enemies, breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Should God's king really be undergoing this suffering? This trouble and this trampling. In verses 5 to 7, David gives an even longer description of his troubles. Read, read verses 5 to 7 again. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. David's cause is, is injured. As his enemies want nothing less than his downfall, his defeat, his deliverance into the hands of death itself. David confesses that he's hunted like an animal. His enemies lurk, they watch his steps, they lie and wait for him. His trouble is so trying that in verse 7 he brings a question to God. And he presents a petition. Will they get away with this? I mean, isn't that the essence of David's question there in verse 7? Are they going to get away with this? God, are you, are you really going to let them succeed? Have you ever asked God a question like this? Is it really going to go this way? Maybe in anger or frustration, impatience or pain, you've asked, will you really let this go unnoticed and unpunished? That is when David's petition enters in. In wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. In other words, O God, exercise your just judgment upon my enemies, upon your enemies. We certainly experience this on an earthly level, don't we? Children, youth, young adults, have you ever asked your parents to punish your siblings for some injustice they have done? 
Well, what about them? Right? Have, you, have you ever asked that? Young people, have you ever been upset when a, a referee, uh, with a referee, when your opponent's infraction kind of goes by unnoticed? That, that was a foul too, you know. Uh, he, here's what we need to remember about God. He always sees and he always cares. More than that, he has a plan to bring about perfect justice in his sovereign time. Perhaps you're horrified by this petition. Perhaps you're aghast that David is requesting God to punish his enemies in his wrath. The reality is this is just the other side of David's opening petition there in verse 1. For God to be gracious to his servant and king, he would have to judge the enemies of his servant and king. Mercy and judgment go hand in hand in the Bible. Just think of the cross of Jesus Christ. He was judged so that we might receive mercy. Mercy and judgment go hand in hand. How would the first readers of this psalm have benefited from from reading and, and singing this prayer and poem from David? How would this psalm concerning God's chosen king, captured outside of the promised land and enduring troubles, have helped God's people? Well, put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite in exile. You've been seized, dragged and driven from your homeland, and now you labor for Babylon, an enemy of God's people. In the very least, this psalm would have given you voice, given voice to your troubles, and it would teach you to pray for God's grace. What about the New Testament people of God? How can this help us, you and me? Who are we but those who are exiles, strangers, and sojourners outside of our promised land of heaven? That's who the Apostle Peter wrote to in his first epistle, those who are exiles, elect exiles of the dispersion, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. You see, we can learn from David too. It's important to recognize that David wasn't living in denial. He didn't ignore or dismiss the fact that he really was suffering. David even underscored the painful length of this trial. Right? We can hear it in that phrase all day long, repeated in verses 1 and 2 and 5. See, David, he didn't minimize the pain, and we can't either when we're suffering. Ignoring and dismissing your suffering is not a solution to a real problem. Though David offered a sincere complaint, though David brought forth and described his trouble with full force, he didn't allow his trouble to triumph. Do you understand that? David didn't give in to defeat or despair. The moment that David called upon the Lord in trouble, be gracious to me, O God. The, the moment that David petitioned God to cast down the peoples, he was acknowledging that God ruled and reigned over his trouble. He was acknowledging that God could do something about his trouble. Christian, God can do something about your trouble. He is probably already doing something in the midst of your trouble. In the very least, he is teaching you to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Through Psalm 56, we see that David was a, a type, a shadow of the reality and substance that was to come in Jesus Christ. Have you considered that the whole character 
of Jesus' life was one of suffering. What David was experiencing and feeling in Gath was what his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, felt and experienced throughout the whole course of his life. Yet, unlike David's sorrows, Jesus carried an additional weight for he was perfectly holy, sinless, and righteous. So I desperately wanted to read you a very lengthy quote about the sufferings of Christ from the best book that I read last year, Donald McLeod's Christ Crucified, but we need to press on. You can find a copy of the quote in the bulletin. Read on it and meditate on it this afternoon, which is not right now. Seriously, read it, meditate on it, and reflect on Christ's sufferings and rejoice in your Savior. What you need to understand now, what we need to understand now, is that just as David was surrounded by enemies, so was Jesus. David's enemies hurled evil words at him and stirred up strife, and Jesus endured the same. David was haunted and hunted, and so was Jesus. David was troubled, and so was Jesus. And just before Jesus gave himself up to his enemies, he said this in Gethsemane, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Christian, when you are troubled and your soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, remember that you are not alone. David was troubled too. More importantly, Jesus was troubled. He learned obedience by what he Suffered, Hebrews 5.8. The whole character of Jesus' life was one of trouble and suffering. And here, here is a difficult truth of the Christian life. If the whole character of Jesus' life was marked by suffering, then we can't expect any less for our own lives. Jesus told us plainly we will suffer. In the midst of his teaching, teaching his disciples that they would be persecuted for his name's sake, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said this in verse 24 of that chapter. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And this was proven over and over and over again in the book of Acts. As Christians suffered for what they believed and proclaimed. Just think of Stephen and his stoning. Think of what was described in Acts chapter 14. The apostle Paul was stoned. He was dragged out of the city and left for dead. And miraculously, he stands up and gets out and gets up and moves on his way to the next town. And then Luke, he describes the work that Paul did and the context in which he did it. In Acts chapter 14, 22, Paul went about, Luke says, Paul went about strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, now listen to Luke's summary of what Paul said to the disciples, saying that through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not around, but through. There is great encouragement here. For not only is there the certainty of entering the kingdom through many tribulations, but also the comfort that our souls can be strengthened in the midst of these tribulations. This is why we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 earlier in the service. Like David... And with Paul, though our lives are marked by suffering, we do not lose heart. Paul goes on to say, though our outer self is wasting away. We feel that, don't we? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
you hear what Paul's saying there? You have to bear this weight in this life so you can bear the glory that is to come. Our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Yes. Yes, the the Christian life is marked by trial and trouble. That fact is not one that you are meant to accept. It is one for you to live by faith. Like Paul and like David, we look through the trouble with eyes of faith. We trust. We look to the things that are unseen and eternal. We trust God's promises and His purposes. So let's turn and think more about that now. Let's take a look at Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, as we consider our second point, trust. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? What, are, what, what do you think of the first four words there in verse 3? What do you think of those words, when I am afraid? Here is David. Here, here is a man who faced a lion, a bear, a giant. Here he is, and he's unequivocally saying, I'm afraid. There's a certain sense when he has, he has good reason to be afraid, doesn't he? I mean, he's in enemy territory, the hometown of Goliath, with the evidence that proves he took off Goliath's head. David was, not known, David was known for defeating not thousands, but tens of thousands of Philistines. He has been surrounded and seized by his enemies, and he's afraid. Are you, are you ever afraid? I mean, who, who, who this past week hasn't experienced some form of fear? Are you afraid? Are you afraid of what people think of you? Are you ever afraid of how, how a conversation will turn out? Are you ever afraid of losing your job? Are you ever afraid of, of, of the loneliness of a situation? Are you ever afraid that people around you will discover the real you? Are you ever afraid that you're too sinful to be forgiven, too weak to be victorious, or too disheartened to be of help? Are you ever afraid that you won't fit in or that you won't figure things out or that you won't meet next week's expenses? Are you ever afraid? The first step toward true trust in God is honesty. It's the kind of honesty that we see here. right? David has no hope in himself. He has been emptied of places where he may put his trust in himself, his strength or his wits. He's come to an end of himself, and he's been left alone with God as his only hope. What about you? What are you trusting in? What are you leaning on? Are you trusting in your wisdom or might, your wealth or your mind? Are you trusting in your works or your meekness? Do you recognize that like David, your only hope of being rescued from your sin is for God to rescue you? What does it mean to trust in God? It means to depend upon Him for everything. You depend upon Him for life and breath. You depend upon Him for bread and board. 
you depend upon Him for salvation from sin, and one day, salvation from all of the suffering that you're enduring. Are you thanking God for those things? See, gratitude actually reveals trust. It shows that we are dependent upon God. David has learned something in his trouble, hasn't he? He has learned that when he's afraid, he will choose to trust God. The second half of verse 3, it's, it's almost defiant, isn't it? When I am afraid, when I'm faced with deadly fear, I will put my trust in you. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And then David explains what that means there in verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Right, we, we get what it might mean for, for David to trust in God, but, but what's he talking about when he says he will praise God's word? What does David mean by that? Remember, David was anointed by God's servant Samuel as the king in waiting. He has God's word of promise that one day he will be king. And David's clinging to that word of promise from God, believing that God will keep his word and bring his promises to pass. This is why David can say what he says there at the end of verse 9. This I know, God is for me. All looks dark right now, but David knows and believes that God will rescue him from the hand of the Philistines. David knows that he can believe this word from God because he knows that God has been faithful to keep his word of promises in the past. Right? David knows from the first five books of the Bible that God keeps his word. He promised Abraham that he'd make him to a great nation, and he did. God promised Israel that he would rescue them out of Egypt, and he did. God promised his people that he'd bring them into the promised land of Canaan, and he did. God promised David that he would be king. And so from the, the history of God's word of promise, David could trust God when he spoke. See, God's word revealed his faithfulness. God's word is truth because God is truth. David would trust and praise God's word because God can be trusted and is worthy of praise. In the end, this is what leads David to say twice. Once at the end of verse 4 and a second time there at the end of verse 11 in just slightly different ways. What can man do to me? Man can do nothing to David but what God permits him to do. What is more, God rules over man and overrules the evil of man all for his glory. When we read David's words, what can man do to me? We, we tend to have two thoughts kind of at the same time, don't we? Um, our first thought is, well, now that you mention it, actually man can do quite a lot to you. When I think about it, um, he can kill me. Right? And then the second thought we have that enters in almost at the same time is, for the one who's filled with faith and the faithfulness of God is this, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Right? We're reminded of Jesus' words in, in Matthew 10, 28. Um, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. We're reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. J.B. Phillips' translation of that verse is this. To live is Christ, to die is more Christ. You see, death for the believer is nothing but gain. What can man do to me? Man, if he so chooses, can murder me. And he will give me more Christ. While living, the presence of Christ is mediated to believers through the Holy Spirit. But at death, believers into the immediate presence of Christ. 
At that point, no barrier separates us from him. To die for a believer is to journey to Christ. Death has lost its sting. And not only has death lost its sting, but for Paul, according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, it has become more desirable. It has a greater advantage. God's word encourages David's trust. But so does God's watchful care. Did you notice that in verse 8? Read verse 8 again and consider afresh how David describes God's watchful care. He writes, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Remember, this is a, this is a poetic way of describing God's care and concern for David. And really for all believers, God has counted David's tossings. He has collected David's tears and he has chronicled David's troubles. You see what David is saying here? David is saying that God, God is, he's watched me when I can't sleep. He's watched me toss and turn with anxiety in the night. And it hurts his heart to see his child so anxious. God has kept count of my tossings. You probably haven't even kept count of your tossings. Uh, There are probably some things that have kept you up in the middle of the night, maybe years ago, that you don't even remember today. But God does. He has counted them. He knows and remembers every word that has wounded and worried you. David is saying, God has collected my tears. God has watched me weep and wail, and it has moved him. We, we know something of this in our experience in, in our earthly lives, don't we? Um, what, what, father, what father hasn't seen his child cry and been moved with compassion? Christian, God is moved by your tears. He sees and he knows. And that's because he cares. A Puritan minister once remarked, As the wicked are hurt by the best things, so the godly are bettered by the worst. Can can you see the truth in that? Can you see that it is in this affliction, in this suffering, this trouble, that David is actually being taught to trust God? Trouble is part of the way that God teaches us to trust Him. Sometimes we cannot learn what it is to trust God apart from trouble. And this trouble is actually a servant. It's a schoolmaster bringing and teaching David to trust in God. Perhaps the clearest expression of David's trust is that remarkable phrase there at the end of verse 9. This I know. God is for me. In the midst of this trouble, David is persuaded that the Lord is on his side, strengthening him and sustaining him. This is perhaps the most difficult thing for believers to believe in the midst of suffering, that God is for us. But Christian, God is for you in your suffering. God is for us. Paul tells us that God is for us in Romans 8.31. We, we prayed that earlier in the service. But I want us to read it now. So keeping one finger here, if you can, turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 944. And when you get there, I think you'll find it kind of, uh, in the Bible's provided at least, in the right-hand column, kind of toward the bottom. How do we know that God is for us? Well, Paul answers in this passage, we know that God is for us because He gave His Son for us. 
In other words, we, we, we already have the objective evidence. We have the proof. The indisputable proof that God is for us because He gave up His one and only most beloved Son for us. And notice all the for us language in these verses. Begin reading there, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is, God's, it is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, we know that God is for us because He gave His Son for us. Just as David had God's word of promise, so we have the word made flesh. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 56. Psalm 56, which is uh, page 476 of the Bible's provided. Christian, you, you can trust God in your suffering. Your suffering cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your suffering can only bring you further up and into God and His love for you. We have objective evidence in time, space, and history that God is for us. You can say with David in Psalm 56, 9, this I know for certain that God is for me. There may be days when you don't feel like God is for you. But your feelings... Do not overturn God's faithfulness to you in Jesus Christ. Christian, that God is for you is an established fact. In Romans 8, and here in this psalm, God reveals that He cares about your feelings, and He declares through the mouth of His servant David that He is for His people, that He is for you. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to know that God is for you too. I want to invite you to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in faith today. And the truth is, if you are not for God, then you are against God. And if you are against God, He is not for you. And you will be eternally separated from Him because of your sin. But friend, it does not have to be that way. You don't have to be against God, and He doesn't have to be against you. Instead, if you trust in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your salvation, as David trusted in God's word of promise, then you will be saved. This world is filled with suffering because of sin. When God made the first man and the first woman, He, he placed them in a beautiful garden. But they rebelled against God. 
They sinned against God, choosing to live according to their own rules rather than God's rules. Because of their sin, suffering and death entered into this world. We experience the effects of sin each and every day. We experience its misery. And we contribute to the sin and misery of this world each and every day. We know that to be true when we speak evil words, like David's enemies spoke. We know it to be true when we have wicked thoughts, like David's enemies had. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. God will one day, to use the words of Psalm 56 verse 7, in his wrath cast down his enemies and set all things right. God will punish sin. And apart from Jesus, we are all in danger of facing his just, eternal, and holy wrath. But, but in love, God sent his one and only most beloved son to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience. And Jesus did so through suffering. Jesus' suffering, suffering culminated not by escaping his enemies like David did, but by giving himself up to them. Remember when Jesus saw his enemies coming in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, arise, let's go to them. Jesus didn't escape his enemies. He didn't try and escape their arrest. No, he allowed them to seize him, to arrest him, to try him in court, and finally put him to death. Where God delivered David from death, he did not permit Jesus to escape death. But God had a purpose in sending Jesus to death on the cross. His purpose was for Jesus to be paid the wages for our working in sin. Jesus died, bearing the sin and the punishment due to all of those who would ever return from their sin and trust in Him. And three days after His death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And now Jesus invites us to come to Him in repentance and faith, turning from our sin and trusting that He lived, died, and was raised from the grave so that we might be certain of our acceptance by God, so that we might be certain that God is for us. So friends, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for your salvation. This is what it means for God to be gracious to you, verse 1, and for you to trust in Him, verse 11. And if you want to know more about what this means, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to speak with you more about this good news that Jesus offers to us as sinners and rebels. Having explored David's trouble and marveled at his trust. Let's turn now and consider our third and final point. Thanks. As we consider David's thanksgiving, read Psalm 56 verses 12 and 13 now. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. These verses, they, they kind of give commentators fits. Uh, the debate usually centers around whether David wrote these verses before or after his deliverance from Gath. The unity of the psalm and the ascription bolsters the claims of those who think that David wrote these verses and the whole psalm while he was in Gath. In the end, it, it doesn't significantly impact our understanding of the psalm. For either way, David looks to perform his vows and render thank offerings to God. What that means is that David wishes to express his gratitude for God's rescue. David wants to do this not, be, not out of any duty to God or out of, demand, out of a demand from God, but simply because he's grateful to God for his rescue. 
What is motivating this desire to bring God thanks is that God has delivered him or will deliver him in the very near future. The vows and thank offerings described here are likely those referred to in Leviticus chapter 7 and Deuteronomy 12. But what kind of deliverance has David received? The whole, home, the soul, the whole psalm hints at it, but verse 13 makes it explicit. David has been saved from death. The Philistines, if they had their way, would have almost certainly put David to death. David knows that his deliverance would not be trivial. And he knows that he will walk before God in the light of life. He would enjoy the the light of God streaming down upon his body. David's confident that he will walk safely and securely. And David may have here in mind the the blessing pronounced by Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. Do you remember that? Where, Where Aaron said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, David wishes to give thanks to God for making his face shine upon him. By faith we know the one who is the light of the world. Jesus is the light who is shown in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 1 verses 3 and 5. By faith in Jesus, we do not walk in darkness but in the light. We are not promised an escape from trials in this life. As we've already thought about it, the whole character of the Christian life from one perspective, from one vantage point, is is a life of suffering. Nevertheless, God's grace is sufficient for the suffering. He sees and knows our trials and troubles. He sustains us in the midst of them. And He promises that one day, He really will rescue us from this world and suffering of sin. Either we will die and go to be with Jesus, or Jesus will come back and make all things new. And there will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sin. God's rich blessings to us in the salvation that we now have in Jesus Christ, they're rich. And He's also given us rich material blessings that we now have in this world and ought to uh, give thanks to Him for. Are you filled with gratitude toward God? Do you wish to give back to Him because He's given so much to you? Are you thankful for your salvation in Jesus Christ? Are you thankful for your daily bread? Are you thankful for fellowship with other believers? Are you thankful for the beauty of the earth and the glories of the skies? Are you thankful for neighbors and co-workers who are genuinely a blessing to you? Are you thankful for the rain and the snow and the heat and the sun? You have received all of this and more from God. Doesn't he deserve our thanks? How can you give thanks to God? We obviously don't perform vows or thank offerings as David did under the old covenant. We can and certainly should express our thanks through prayer. We can express our thanks through giving our time and talent and treasure to the work of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can and should most fundamentally give thanks with our whole lives to God. What was it that the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12 verse 1? He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude. And as we do, I want us to turn to one final passage in the New Testament. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, 
you should be able to find the passage on page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. David's trouble predicted, prophesied, and portrayed the trouble that Jesus would face. David's trust predicted, prophesied, and portrayed the trust that Jesus would exhibit throughout the whole course of his life. Jesus was obedient unto and through death. Jesus even showed his undying trust in God the Father as he said on the cross, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit, entrusting myself to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, call us to endure trouble with trust like Jesus. Here's what Peter says. For to this you have been called. You've been called to this, Christian. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christian, the, the suffering of Christ reveal, reveals that God knows about our sufferings, that he cares about them, and that he has done something about them. So give thanks to God. Give thanks to God that he has not merely counted you worthy to know Christ and to share in his sufferings, but also to be healed by them. Let's pray together.